It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, rape, and the abuse of children. We talk a lot about the dead on the show, specifically the victims of homicides. We feel compelled to tell their stories who they were, how they died. But it's important to remember that not all victims of a crime, even a killing, even a murder spree, die. In some cases, society doesn't even officially classify these people as victims. In this episode, we'll speak with a man who is the son and grandson of serial killers. This person now a grown man grappling with his family history, was made to suffer for the sins of his mother, stepfather, and grandfather. 
and his story should resonate with anyone interested in true crime stories. It's important to remember the children who are caught up in the background of these sad, horrible cases. They are often left to deal with the disruptive and traumatizing consequences of violence at an extremely young age. We're speaking, of course, about the donut shop killers. As many of you know, Kevin and I appear on the new Wondery podcast, Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders. The series examines the story of Sherman McCrary and Carl Taylor, two men who went on a multi-state spree of rape and murder back in the early 70s. Please go check that out and leave a five-star review if you like it. We were really thrilled to be a part of the program. McCrary and Taylor, of course, brought their wives along with them on their violent rampage. We discussed that last year. But they also brought their kids and grandkids along. And that is not something we really went into before. What did these youngsters see? How did it affect them? And what happened to them after the police arrested all of their closest relatives? We started getting the answers to those questions last month after we got an email from Jerry Nations. Jerry was the son of Ginger Taylor, the stepson of Carl Taylor, and the grandson of Sherman McCrary. Jerry, his brother Glenn, and his half-brother Michael were with the family as they traveled the country, robbing and raping and killing. Jerry was just five when the Taylor-McCrary crime rampage ended, but the memory of those distant days affected his entire life and haunts him to this day. We were a little reluctant to press Jerry on some of the horrible details of that time, but he told us it wasn't a problem. I ain't gonna lie to you, I think it does me good to talk about the crap, get it off my chest, because now I got people that believe me, and if you doubt anything I say, I've got all my records. I can back up everything I say. Join us this week and next for the story of Jerry Nations. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We're The Murder Sheet, and this is The Donut Shop Killers, The Sun.
The records Jerry mentioned are all related to his time in foster care and his eventual adoption. They include letters from his parents, reports from social workers, and court documents. He generously shared them all with us so we could tell his story as fully as possible, and we will be quoting from them throughout these episodes. Jerry was born in the summer of 1967 to Ginger McCrary Johnson and Jerry Johnson. His brother Glenn came along in 1969, but there was trouble ahead for the young couple. Here's an excerpt from a letter from Jerry Johnson. I was sent to prison in 1969 for a probated burglary that was revoked for a misdemeanor DWI. That was my first and only time in prison. I was in the Texas Department of Corrections for just a little over one year. The burglary was a two-year sentence. My whole record consists of one felony, the above-mentioned burglary, two misdemeanors, one of them is the above-mentioned DWI and aggravated assault on a female. The assault I received a 30-day sentence for slapping Ginger's mother. In the midst of all of that, Ginger and Jerry Johnson got a divorce. Ginger got custody of the kids. She soon married Carl Taylor, and Jerry Johnson largely faded from the picture, not seeing his sons at all for years. Here's another letter from Jerry Johnson. Unless you know some of the facts of this, it would appear I deliberately neglected my children, which is not true at all. First of all, I am, or was, of the opinion that if a mother and father just have to be divorced, that any children involved belong more so with the mother, especially if they're small and Jerry Jr. and little Glenn were hardly more than babies after Ginger and I were divorced. I had at the time no objections for Ginger having custody of my sons, but when we were married, Ginger was a very devoted and dedicated mother. I do not know exactly what did happen for her to allow my sons to be put in the danger they were after her marriage to this Taylor fellow. I learned through Ginger's grandmother and friends of Ginger's there in Dallas, Texas, that she had remarried, but still, the thought of her marrying a murderer never entered my mind, or the thought of her father, brother, being killers too. These people, Ginger's immediate family, just didn't used to be this way. Ginger's grandmother wouldn't or couldn't give me their address. I honestly thought that Ginger had married some good man and perhaps didn't want an ex-husband coming around to upset her. I heard new jealous husband. This seemed logical to me at the time. Then, on or about November 6, 1970, I was arrested on this previous robbery charge, and later even convicted and given a rather large sentence. With Johnson absent, Carl essentially became young Jerry's father figure. A social worker would later write, Jerry remembers Carl Taylor as daddy and was surprised to learn that he was not his real daddy. Ginger and Carl would also have a son together, Jerry's half-brother, Michael. This child would essentially be an infant throughout the time of the crime spree. Jerry's memories of Carl are not happy ones. I'm going to tell you, I've been around a lot of people in my life. Even when I was in prison, I ain't never been around nobody as mean as uh, Carl was. He was just 
like a, oh, I mean, just a cold, mean, mean, mean man. Can you tell us more about him and what kind of a person he was and how he treated you and Ginger? Uh, he was, like, you know, me and Glenn, we were pretty much kept out of his way because if we got around him or whatever, you know, it wasn't enough for him, you know, if we get loud or play and shit for him, just grab bait and just roll you. I remember one night we was in the bathroom and I forget what we was doing. I really, mind may block out whatever, but I remember him getting mad and me waking up on the floor. And I'm sitting there thinking, Ginger's over there crying and shit like that. I'm thinking he may have just knocked the shit out of me or whatever. Did they ever, I think, did they do stuff in front of you guys in terms of like the robberies and the, and the killings? Oh, I remember one time when we're all, I don't know who the victim was or what it was, but I remember, you know, us pulling up and then putting this girl in the back seat and we were told in the front seat. We got put in the front seat and y'all look ahead and then we went off somewhere and then we stopped and then next thing we know, we hear the girl crying and screaming and we all knew not to say a damn thing. And then next thing we hear some top pops and that's about it and couldn't tell you who it was, where we were, or anything like that. On other occasions, Jerry would not be present for the actual murders, but he realizes now that he was around just afterwards. But what's crazy, you know, a lot of times, it never dawned on me why they'd come in the middle of the night and they would make us leave everything. We would just go get in the car and go. I mean, we, were, we might be allowed to bring one little old toy, but that used to make me so mad because I remember one time, I forget where we was, but we were staying in a little, like a silver-looking trailer house. And I had my big wheel parked out right outside the doors when them big wheels first come out in the 70s. And I thought I was this cool cat daddy. And then in one couple of days, they come in, got to go. They put us in the back of that car and we left. I was so freaking mad I wanted to kill that man for making me leave my big wheel. I remember that just making me live it. You know, we were, we'd always get new stuff when we got to where we was going, but you know, I think that's why now that uh, when I buy stuff or get stuff, I take uh, care of it. I've got, I've got clothes I've had for 20 years. They don't fit, but I just don't want to throw them away. I don't, I don't know if that's where that come from or what. We asked Jerry about the other members of the family. Do you do you have any memories of Sherman? Yes. Can you tell us? Not a whole lot. I remember us being in these old houses and shit, and he used to make us all like sleep together a lot of times. Me, Tammy, Ginger, Carlene, Glenn, and I really don't remember what they did with Michael. He was still a baby, baby. You know, we'd be in there giggling and shit, and he'd come in there and be drunk, mad as shit, and fucking just go to beating us and whatever. And do you, do you, I'm curious, do you, do you remember the other members of the family, like Danny or Carolyn, the, the you know, the Sherman's wife? Yeah, I remember uh, Carolyn. Danny is off and on, because I remember he, he wasn't mean to us. You know, but then again, Danny wasn't around all the time. You know, he was a here and there. Carolyn, don't remember a whole lot about her. I remember her, she's kind of like quiet. 
you know, now I look back, I see why she's probably scared to talk. We, we, we were told that Carolyn often carried around a Bible. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true, though. Oh, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you. One thing I can tell you, she wasn't living by it. <laughs> but I'm telling you, they can say they didn't know what they did know. There's no way in hell you can tell me they did not know. The police, of course, finally caught up with the McCrary-Taylor family. Jerry and his brothers were not present when Carl was arrested, but they were on the scene when the cops collared Ginger. He was not quite five at the time. You remember that? Yo, hell yeah. Can you tell us like about it? Like it was yesterday. Can you tell us about it? Well, that, that's what I was just telling you. We were sitting there. I wanted to say she was carrying all three of us to get haircuts. And I remember us pulling up into them in the parking lot. And that's when she started screaming, y'all get down, get down, they're going to kill us, they're going to kill us. And my brother hopped down in the front seat, I hopped on top of him, and next thing I know, this dude grabs me out by my feet and drags me out, and it scared me. So I'm sitting there hitting him and trying to bite him and stuff like that, because I'm freaking out, I don't know what the hell's going on. And he just, like, grabs me and tries to hold me down and stuff, so I'm trying to bite him. And... Oh, yeah, I remember that very vividly. Now the authorities had to find a place for Jerry, Glenn, and Michael to stay. Yeah, the first one that they took us away, they you know, put us that one box home, then they stuck us out there at uh, Carl's parents' house there in Athens. And that's, I mean, that was... They would let Michael, that's the baby boy, you know, because he was Carl's son, they would let him stay in the house. But Glenn and I, we were real Jerry's kids. We weren't, uh, you know, Carl, so they wouldn't let us stay in the house until the social workers come to visit. Kept us locked up in a damn pen out there. And when the social workers would come over, she'd carry us up there and then rub us down, wash us down with a hose and shit and outside and, no, we were told you don't say nothing. You don't say nothing. It is unclear if Ginger knew just how poorly her sons were being treated by Carl's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Clemens. But she began to grow increasingly concerned about the boys, especially after she made a deal with the authorities to testify against Carl. She worried that Carl's family might want to seek revenge on her by harming her sons. So... In November of 1972, she wrote to the welfare department and asked them to remove her children from the Clemens home. One of the caseworkers would later write about just what happened. No home visit was made to this home by this social worker before removal of the children. I was instructed not to do so because the grandparents might run off with the children. The law enforcement officials and the judge did not want to take any chances. The sheriff served papers on Mr. and Mrs. Clemens. The sheriff said, We knew they probably weren't going to harm the children, but that we had no choice about removal of the children. Mr. Clemens was very cooperative and invited us into his home. We were greeted by Jerry Johnson, Glenn Johnson, and Mike Taylor. The three children were beautiful. 
Mrs. Clemens became very upset and hysterical. She did not want us to remove the children from her home. She could not understand why we were doing this to her. She said they were just like her own children, and she couldn't harm them. Over and over again, we tried to explain that we had no choice. The children did not seem to be the least bit upset. I talked with Jerry, age 5, and Glenn, age 3, about the possibility of them going to live somewhere else. They seemed very pleased about getting to go somewhere. I told them that we'd be leaving their grandparents and going to live with someone else for a while. They said it would be just fine with them. They began telling me various tall tales. Jerry is quite a talker. He reminds one of Dennis the Menace. He was dressed exactly like Dennis the Menace. He had blonde hair like Dennis and also has the little cow look on top of his head. Jerry seems to be a very intelligent child and was always ready with an answer to any question. He never shut his mouth from the time we arrived until the time we left him at the foster home. I must say, I became quite attached to Jerry. He's the kind of child you can't help but love the moment you see him. He was quite a talker, and I would have taken him home myself if I could have gotten away with it. After talking with the boys for a few minutes, I decided to go in and see if I could help Mrs. Clemens with any of the packing. When I opened the bedroom door, I found her on the bed sobbing and trying to pack the clothes. She could not understand why we were taking the children away. Mrs. Clemens did not feel she had mistreated the children in any way and could not see why we would move the children. I told her that due to the information we received from police authorities, we had no choice but to remove the children. Mrs. Clemens said, I have had just about all I can take. I can't stand anymore. In the car, as they were leaving, Jerry and Glenn constantly talked. They told us about the various things that were located in the backyard of the grandparents' home. They talked about where they used to live. They talked about family members, always called by their first name. Often they spoke with Mama Ginger, Daddy Carl, Sherman, Danny, Carolina. At the time we picked them up, we did not know who these people were. However, after inquiring in papers and with various police officials, we found that these were the members of the McCrary family who were widely known throughout the United States for various murders and robberies. Jerry and his brothers were now in the foster care system. But that did not mean things would get any better. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one -on -one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. 
It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Oh, we, was, we were in foster care four years. And they split us up pretty quick once they got us out of the Clements household. And uh, Robert Michael, the baby, he got adopted pretty quick because he, you know, he was young. But then Glenn and I, they separated us because we were old. Glenn wasn't in a whole lot of foster homes because Glenn's very, he's probably one of the most laid back and nice, nicest people you ever meet in your life. Well, I remember, I guess, way too much stuff. I was a mean little hellion. So I got bounced around off to a bunch of foster homes. In fact, I was in one foster home. I wasn't even there one night and they got rid of me. What happened? They, well, there was this little kid next door, and he kept antagonizing me, and he'd run off, and I couldn't catch him. So I picked up a brick and knocked him in the head with it and laid him out, and they had to call the ambulance on me. You got I'm six years old doing this. And they uh, had to call the ambulance, come get him and all this crap, and called the police, and I was gone for dark. I know, I think I turned a lot of my, uh, your, the emotion that I turn, you know, you turn any emotion into anger. And I think that's what I did more, you know. You can turn that hurt and that feeling of not being wanted and that feeling of why in the hell did my mama do this to me? And how do you deal with it other than being mad about it? In order to help Jerry and his brothers, the welfare department needed to first grapple with the crimes committed by Ginger and Carl. From their records, it seems as if they had a difficult time doing that, as if they couldn't quite grasp the enormity of what the Taylors had done to the boys. Instead, they appeared to try very hard to find positive things to say about Carl and Ginger. 
Here are some excerpts from their reports. Mrs. Taylor was a strange mixture as a parent because it appears she cared well for them until she exposed them to hazardous situations after marrying Mr. Taylor. One thing I noticed about the boys, which struck me as odd, was their good manners. Both boys said thank you, no thank you, yes ma'am, no ma'am, to any questions you asked them. I told the boys they were very swell little boys. I asked them where they learned all their good manners. They told me their mama Ginger and their daddy Carl told them you were supposed to say yes ma'am, no ma'am, thank you and no thank you, and to say your prayers each night. I was quite surprised at this, but I guess it just goes to show that every person has a little bit of good in them. It seems as if the Taylors tried to instill what goodness they had into their children. But regardless of their attitudes towards Ginger and Carl, it should have been clear that Jerry, at least, very badly needed help. Shortly after he was taken away from his grandparents, the couple came into the social worker's office to discuss Jerry. Here are some excerpts from her reports on those talks, as well as follow-up talks she had with his first foster parents. Mr. and Mrs. Clemens came to the office, and we discussed Jerry and Glenn. They told me of various problems that Jerry had. Jerry, it seems, has violent fits at times. He has tried to hang his brother Glenn. He has tried to choke him, and he mistreats his brother Michael. And all in all, he is a violent little boy. His grandparents feel that this is due to his father, Jerry Johnson Sr. Jerry does not seem to be a child who can be corrected, according to the grandparents. They have many difficulties with this. They feel that Jerry needs some kind of psychological or psychiatric help. I failed to notice any kind of irregular behavior the night I picked them up, but we'll attend to the matter. The Foster family visited and revealed that Jerry knows quite a bit about his parents' background. Jerry has told the Foster family about killing the people with knives, about people coming into their motel room and everyone taking off their clothes and laying all over the beds. It seems that he might have witnessed an orgy of some sort. Everything he talks about includes death, violence, or some gruesome activity. Jerry never seems to have a pleasant thought. Every thought he has, or every game he plays, usually deals with death. Not in dying alone, but in some gruesome aspect, such as murder with guns, knives, or anything out of the normal. Despite all of this, the state never provided mental health services to Jerry. No, I think it was really crappy on the state's part to do us, pull us out like that, and then no counseling. You know, and then when you do try talking to people, they say, oh, you're lying. And, you know, what the hell do you do? And, of course, in addition to his unique circumstances, Jerry also had to deal with the normal stresses and pressures of being a five-year-old in foster care. It was wild. Can we imagine being five years old and all of a sudden you're starting to get dumped in everybody's houses that you don't have a clue who they are. Yeah, it must have been awful. You must have felt really unloved and uncared for. Big time. Well, that's why I got Glenn. He's got to stay in a few, way less than I did, but 
when they separated us, I got like, that's why I got popped around so many homes because, you know, like say that kids start talking shit to me and stuff, well, you know how you get people to quit talking shit to you? You whoop their ass. <laughs> and I did a lot of that fighting just, you know how you pretty well turn any emotion into anger. So I turned mine into anger. And it said that uh, at that time you did not sleep well. You, you cry out in your sleep and have awful dreams. Yeah. I still remember some of them, them dreams. They were that vivid. What are some of the ones you still remember? Like I'm going down this dark hallway and I'm hollering for my brother, Glenn. And there's animal heads. Like, you know, stuff, zebras and shit like that up on the walls and I'm hollering for him and hollering for him hollering for him and I never could get no answer and I don't know what the hell all that means but that's I remember this 50 years later it was real that vivid to make matters worse the social worker and a judge scheduled a time for the boys to visit with Mr. and Mrs. Clements the social worker reported The boys have been very upset about coming to visit their grandparents. The boys cried and begged their foster mother not to send them on the visit. They said their grandparents whipped them and they did not want to go for the visit. I did feel that it was necessary for me to take the boys on a visit to see their grandparents due to the fact that the judge had asked that the boys visit and that I had already made the plans. As soon as we got into the car, Jerry started various questions. The first thing he mentioned was the sheriff's car. He saw the deputy's car and said that is a mean man's car. I asked him why he thought that, and he said because they kill little kids. This came as quite a shock to me, and I asked Jerry to explain, and he said they get their guns and they kill you. They kill all little kids. Policemen and soldiers do. I tried to explain to Jerry that policemen do not kill little kids, that they are your friends, and that soldiers do not kill little kids. They are your friends too. But Jerry did not listen. He just kept on saying over and over, policemen are bad. My daddy killed a policeman and they are bad. This went on and on and on. Finally, we got outside the city limits and we were just talking about various pleasant things. Jerry told me that he wanted to grow a garden. He said last summer I was playing in a garden and said I dug and dug and dug way down deep and you know what I found? I found a hand and I chopped it off. After this, he started telling me a tale about vultures he saw in the sky. He said they eat dead stinking people. I asked him why they eat people and he said they are dead and they stink. I decided not to go into the subject with him any further. They went to the social worker's office for the visit with the grandparents. Glenn seemed scared of his grandparents. Jerry talked with them for about two minutes and he left and visited with various people in the office. When I asked him if he wanted to see his grandparents, he said he'd already seen them and I don't want to see them anymore. All the way home, the boys were real quiet. All they ever said was, please don't take us back to visit anymore. I assured them I wouldn't. The caseworker continued to note her fears for Jerry 
and even shared a story about a visit to a holiday event that turned quite traumatic. She wrote, I do foresee many problems with Jerry. Jerry seems to have a lot of emotional problems. He consistently speaks of things that his mother and stepfather did. He also has an abnormal fear of police and the armed forces. The Foster family took Jerry and Glenn to a Christmas parade. For Jerry, the fun of the parade ended as soon as it started. The police officers began clearing the street, and when they did, Jerry began to scream. He said they were going to kill them. They had to take Jerry home. When he got away from the police and police cars, he seemed to calm down by himself. The social worker decided it would be a good idea to come by the next day and take Jerry down to the police station, where she could introduce Jerry to the police as being friends of hers. When we got in the car, I told Jerry I was going to take him to meet some friends of mine. Jerry asked who. I told him that we were going to see the sheriff and see some policemen. Jerry said that he did not want to see the sheriff or policemen. I asked Jerry why, and he said that they killed little kids. Jerry said one time his mother and daddy, Ginger and Carl, went to the grocery store, and when they came out of the store, policemen started shooting at them. Jerry said that when they started driving off, the police started shooting at the car. Jerry said that his mother made them lay down on the seat of the car so the bullets wouldn't hit them. Jerry said those policemen were mean. I asked Jerry if this really happened or if he was just making up a story. Jerry said it was true. I told Jerry that the people I was taking him to see were nice people and that they would not hurt him. I told Jerry that I loved him and that I wanted him to see that policemen are not mean people. Jerry finally agreed to go to see the sheriff. When we got inside the office, Jerry stuck real close to me. Jerry asked the sheriff what he used his gun for. The sheriff answered that he had his gun to protect people from criminals, people who did bad things. The sheriff told Jerry that he did not like to use his gun. Jerry commented that all the deputies and the sheriff wore cowboy boots. Jerry seemed to think that was really cool. We spent nearly an hour in the sheriff's office. Before we left the office, Jerry was sitting in the sheriff's lap and talking to him 90 miles an hour. Next, the pair went to a police station. The police chief showed Jerry some pictures of his family, and Jerry seemed quite surprised that this man had children about the same size as him. After the visit ended, Jerry said that the police were nice. I told Jerry that most policemen were nice. I did explain to him that not all policemen were nice, that there were some bad policemen. Jerry seemed to understand that there are good people and bad people in all professions. The holidays brought still another stressful event. Jerry's foster father took the boy into the woods to get a Christmas tree. The social worker reported that, He took Jerry by himself because he thought it would be good for Jerry. They went way out in the woods and looked for a tree. When they finally found a suitable tree, they went back to the truck to get something to cut the tree. The foster father pulled a machete out of the truck 
And when he did, Jerry went into hysterics. Jerry told his foster father he thought he was going to kill him. His foster father assured him they were just going to get the tree and go home. Jerry calmed down and they cut down the tree. In December 1972, the parental rights of Ginger and Carl Taylor were formally terminated in a hearing. Jerry and Glenn's father, Jerry Johnson, didn't seem to have heard of any of these developments until 1973. He was in the middle of serving a prison term and, as we mentioned, he had not seen his children in years. But he began sending the welfare department and the courts a series of pleading letters in which he virtually begged for the courts to let him or his family have custody of the boys. Kevin will now read some excerpts from those letters. I want only what's best for Glenn and Jerry Jr. I will and can prove myself worthy of being the type of father my boys both need and deserve. I'm not a lazy person. I'm not scared of working. Please consider all these things before some complete stranger tries obtaining adoption of my boys. If I can win my freedom, get back to working steady, do you think it would be possible for me to get Michael too? I realize he's not my son, but he's my two other boys' little brother, and it would be nice to try to keep them all together. I love children, and the worst thing in the world to do as far as I'm concerned is to abuse or neglect a child. They deserve all the love and care one can give a child. I have a very wonderful 46-year-old mother who's never been inside a jail in her life except to see me. I also have a very wonderful young 28-years-old girlfriend, and I'll more than likely marry her upon my release, also never been in any trouble. Both my mother and girlfriend have expressed their desire to keep Glenn and Jerry Jr. forever or upon my release. These women are decent, and the boys would be loved and cared for properly. But the state clearly did not take Jerry Johnson's ideas and pleas seriously. At one point, a social worker wrote, Mr. Johnson asked that we investigate the home of his fiancée for possible placement of the boys. I wrote and requested a home evaluation of this home, and the Louisiana Welfare Department refused to do so, because they felt it was just a fantasy of an incarcerated man, and they could see no hope of placement. To us, Jerry Johnson's letters seemed to express a sincere desire for him to take custody of his sons, and we thought the state's refusal to take that seriously frankly seemed a bit cold. We decided to find out what Jerry thought about it. And what did you What did you make, though, of the state not giving him custody? Do you think that was the right move at the time, or what, what do you make of that decision? I do, you know, other than the fact that, you know, Glenn and I did four years in uh, foster care, and that was kind of screwed up rough at times, but I believe the end outcome that Glenn and I both were better, in a way better place by the nations adopting us. Next week, we will finish the story of Jerry's time in foster care, learn about his adoption, and discover what happened when he reunited with Ginger as an adult, and the shocking truth about her life today. We'd like to thank Jerry Nations for reaching out to us, for talking with us, and for sharing with us all of the records pertaining to his adoption. 
everything you heard in this episode was based on the materials we found in his adoption file. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MurderSheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.